This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. weekend wrapping presents well suzanne has been wrapping presents oh man <laughs> i'm not great at it and at wrapping presents no and i don't care to become better so yeah i'm awful at it actually <laughs> okay uh, it always looks like a, a four-year-old got bored midway through Mm-hmm. which and is basically the case except it was like a 29 year old kidding oh i get really through. into it but i'm just bad at it <laughs> my philosophy my present wrapping philosophy because it is tis the season for present wrapping uh-huh um is that they're just like it just exists to obscure the item mm-hmm. so if it obscures the item and it's not too hard to remove because everybody has that relative who just tapes every seam and makes it impossible to get at the sweet, sweet presents in there. As long as it obscures the item, it's fine. Yeah, that's all you need. You get bonus points for style, but you get like a participation <laughs> grade for wrapping things at all. <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you have been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Or you could just do the coward's way out and like put everything in bags. Bags are real good for birthdays. Bag bags are real good for. I got you this thing because I knew your birthday was coming, but I didn't think about when I was going to give it to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's in a bag. Here you go. Well, and you can't stack those bags either. So if you're yeah. trying to make a good Christmas tree with a bunch of stuff under it, it can't just be like ba- like six feet horizontally of bags. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the secret to never needing to learn how to wrap good: never wrap your presents till Christmas Eve. <laughs> Oh, you yeah, you could do that. I was I was gonna suggest marrying into rapping. Well, I w- yes, I will be doing that, Laura. Which is what I have, <laughs> what I have done. But no, my my secret is wrap it after people have gone to bed mm-hmm. on Christmas Eve, or if I did not celebrate Christmas, but I was just giving people random presents on random present day Eve, mm-hmm. and I would just shove it under the non denominational. Uh, bush. And Wait. So how does this excuse like the bad wrapping job? How do they know when you wrapped it? And in well, what mental state? No, you were so in? here's okay. Oh, okay. Let me work work backwards. I right. think the the pretty wrapping job is only important if it's going to sit under there and like oh. like entice you for a while. Okay. So it does. It's not. It doesn't matter if it's aesthetically pleasing if people aren't actually going to look at it. If you are judging my wrapping in the 15 seconds between me handing it to you and you getting the present after unwrapping it, you're doing it wrong. You are doing it wrong because your kid brain should take over and you should be like, I need to see what is under this more than I've ever needed anything in my entire life. If you do not instantly become N64 kid when you are handed a present. Yeah, you do. You're, yeah, come on. (laughs) <laughs> we've got a present for you it's called this podcast and each week one of us reads a book the other person did not read that book usually and we talk about the author 
and the book itself so that you don't have to. Or maybe you do, you want to, but you don't have a mic, so you just have to listen. Or maybe you did already, and you're just like, what are these idiots going to say this week? Yeah, hold on to your butts. Andrew, what did you read this week? All right, I read Jinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart. Okay. Did I pronounce his name right? That's the way I've always pronounced Am it. Am I going to pronounce any other names right through the entirety of this podcast? I don't know. No. So have you read this book? I read it in ninth grade, which puts it into that gray area of books I may or may not have actually you, read. You may have just read the Cliffs Notes. To I, the it's very distinctly possible. I do have like distinct memories of talking about this book, even though my recollection of the the events is certainly very fuzzy. Yeah, it's not a long book and it's not a super complex book, but mm-hmm. you know, the the subject matter that it deals with is really interesting and it's it's got a lot of historical significance too, which we'll talk about. So let's start with Achebe. He was born in 1930 and died in 2013. Yeah, he made it a pretty long ways. And um he was a Nigerian novelist, a poet and professor, and his work is significant because it was not the very very first, but some of the very first literature written in english like in english first that mm-hmm. comes from that part of the world correct and um and so let let's step back a little bit and talk about um nigerian colonization in um this is the colonization by britain it starts in earnest like in the late 19th century and then ends in 1960 yeah, and it started all the way in the early 19th century with uh, when the Atlantic slave trade was going on. Um, right, yeah. That was certainly affecting that area um, of Nigeria and the people that, the, you know, the uh, the Igbo people who we'll, we'll talk about in this book, I believe. Yes. Um, but yeah, after Britain prohibited the trade and then ended up colonizing in 1885, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the period of time the book is taking place in is in that later period, so late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. Um, Achebe himself, by the time he was born, it had already been like a thing. He he was the things fall apart. Kind of depicts the early stages of it, and I think that he's basing that sort of on the life of his father and his father's generation more than on his own personal experiences, but um. You know, even even by the time he's writing and thinking about it, like there's a lot of stuff going on with like the clash of the cultures. So the clash of the stuff that was already there with the largely Christian colonizers. And so that's what that's a lot of what his body of work deals with is that conflict between the old and the new. And what I was kind of surprised by in Things Fall Apart is that he's not especially sympathetic to either view. Like he, he, he wants compromise and like sharing of ideas to be the thing that wins out rather than, rather than yelling at the colonizers for importing their own thing and ruining what was already there or, you know, criticizing the native people for having beliefs that I think we would probably consider backward now. Well, yeah, cause um, his parents had, were both Christian, um, and the, all the names of him and his siblings kind of blend traditional Igbo culture with Christian influence. And so, right. so his, his first name is Albert. His dad's first name is Isaiah. Like it's, and this happens in the book too. It's like Christian first name, 
then traditional middle name and then the you know the family name yes mm-hmm. uh but so even apparently when he was going to government college and then later uh what was it university it was I'll look up this university university university, university, university college. college yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why I was like that's is that what name. it is <laughs> um it's like the name of a college from like a TV show. Like, yo, oh, I'm going to University State <laughs> this fall. I'm, I'm going to local state. <laughs> uh, that he was going in the 40s, um, and then he graduated in the early 50s. And at that point, the bustling of Nigerian independence is taking place. I think Nigeria achieves actual independence in 1960 two years after this book is published Mm -hmm. but kind of what you were saying andrew i thought this was interesting he read a lot of uh american and and european authors many of whom were writing uh he was fascinated by stories that took place in africa or had colonial themes but there he always found himself rooting for the white protagonist because that's how the authors were depicting those stories yeah um, i have a, I have a quote from him go for it this is him reading these books at a younger age um the white man was good and reasonable and intelligent and courageous the savages arrayed against him were sinister and stupid or at the most cunning i hated their guts and, it, it and was, so yeah later yeah. he goes to to um university college <laughs> and um and is reading this book where what is what's the specific book did you take down the name of it um, oh. it was a Joyce Carey's 1939 book Mr. Johnson yes um and he was he was taken by the fact that every nigerian character in it was either like a monster or an idiot mhm and he came to realize that the reason why he was rooting for the white person is because all the authors who are writing this stuff are completely ignorant about nigerians and like that traditional way of life like the reason why he hates the characters is because the people who are writing those characters are not doing a good job of capturing them yeah and he kind of then evolves his worldview even further and and later on in his life is kind of attacking um joseph conrad and heart of darkness which i think his critique of heart of darkness has kind of become canonical at this point (laughs) Sure. Uh, even though it that then falls into a like, it's a terrible thing and it's depicting things terribly. Is that part of the point or is that still problematic? We've talked about that for other subject matter um, where you can, you know, is the fact that it, this novel depicting imperialism is inherently biased against African people mm-hmm. in how it depicts them? Well, is that the author's fault or is that the story he's trying to tell? But Achebe would encourage you and has said to read that book and then still not like it for that reason because <laughs> he thinks Conrad is a is a technically good author but he doesn't like what's going on in that book yeah that makes sense um so yeah I think that we'll talk a little bit more specifically about how whether or not he comes down on either side of this because I think he does he probably toes a pretty narrow line between the he two. really yeah he really doesn't like there are specific arguments given for and against that i find really interesting or maybe like it's part of this is me like wondering what what achebe want, wants me to be reading and what i like i'm bringing to it because my sure. initial my like gut reaction is oh great these people are coming over here and declaring themselves 
like masters of these previously free people who really don't owe them anything. Mm-hmm. But now all of a sudden are caught up in the society that they <laughs> that they did not even know that they wanted to be a part of. Because yeah. they didn't want to be a part of it. And like be, having a knee jerk and negative reaction to that. But at the same time, like some of the stuff that the Nigerian characters are doing is pretty cruel and pretty like mm-hmm. misogynist and pretty nasty. So, all right. So, yeah, we'll get into what do you that. Want to, what do you want to know first? I mean, have, having read this book, what would you like to? Oh man, I would first? need or, like, to. What do you remember? I remember that there's a guy named Okonkwo. Yeah. Okonkwo. And... That's the main dude. And apart from all the like culture clash stuff, the book serves mostly as a character study of him. That's yeah, I recall that much, and I know that he has some wives. He has three wives and yeah. several children, which is the customary. Yeah, we're running out of what I remember, Andrew. You gotta help me out, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> like what? What is? How does it start? What is the vibe? What is the overall like? Where Where are we at top? So we meet Okonkwo, and he is this very strong respected warrior in his tribe and he's he's most of the most of the early part of the book is him like responding to his father so the the book is telling us how he is so he's strong he's self-made he's independent and then he's telling and then the book is telling us why he's this way okay so he is this way because his father unoka was a lazy guy (laughs) okay and he did not harvest his crops properly and he did not do things with a mind toward like having something to pass down mm-hmm. to his son and his his descendants and he and he owed everybody money and he was just generally not a great guy so at a young age Okonkwo is learning how to fend for himself and fend for his family and basically when his father dies he has he has nothing and he has to borrow um yam seedlings like yams are the prominent crop in this book and and the number of yams you can grow and sell has a lot to do with how prosperous you are that seems Um, reasonable so yeah he he starts basically from nothing and then needs to build up into you know into the respected member of the tribe who he is and he has the you know he has his family he has his wives and his kids and and he's doing everything he's doing pretty well Especially when compared to how his father did. Okay. But that does not mean that he's necessarily a great guy. So he's... The fact that he grew up working so hard and he had it so rough makes him really not like signs of like idleness or uh, womanishness in Mm. his kids. Like there's a whole thing in this book where there's very... Like there's a manly way to do things and there's a woman way, like a female way to do things. And the man way is like the the brave right way and the female way is like the accidental way or like the, the roundabout sort of way. Okay. Um, yeah, that's just one of the sort of misogynist things that I wanted to, that wanted to talk about. So he's he's got this son, uh, Nwoye, I'm going to say, mm-hmm. who is i mean he's he's a sensitive kid and he likes his mom's stories like he likes to he he favors his mother to his father and his father yells at him all the time and he beats him and he beats his wives and you just get you get 
an impression that Okonkwo is like a tightly wound <laughs> dude. It's okay. That, like it said, it, the book sets you up at the beginning to respect him and be impressed by his accomplishments, once you, which you are supposed to be, I think. But then it goes into a bunch of stuff about about his character flaws, basically. And um, is I'm he need a second to look something up? So you ask me your question. Is he unique among the community for being uh, that rough to his family? He is rougher than most. Yes. Okay. Um, I I don't know that he's unique, and it's, and the sort of the attitudes and the traditions that he's sort of leaning on to justify his like beating people that's and whatever. Like line, that's yeah. that's that's stuff that's like ingrained. Well, that but he's maybe yeah, doing yeah. it. He's doing it more like he like. There's supposed to be this this time of like peace. Um, either before or after the harvest, like every, everything is sort of centered on yams and the yam harvest and the dry okay. season and the rainy season and all this very natural like stuff that happens at a set time. So there's supposed to be this this sort of lull where you're supposed to be preparing for this big feast or whatever. And he beats one of his wives during this peaceful time. Mm-hmm. And nobody and you're not supposed to do that. So like he goes and he makes the necessary sacrifices, but everybody's like, man, that guy. Maybe he needs to keep a lid on it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, maybe Okonkwo you know? needs to chill out. I also remember calling him Okonkwo, which you I think. Do I mean, I again, I have no idea like what the correct pronunciation. No, I don't think I was saying. I don't think in ninth grade I meant that to be the correct pronunciation. Oh, you were. That just was being, my ninth. You're just grade. being ninth grade funny. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a funnier very specific today. kind of funny. <laughs> It's aged very poorly. Um, so yeah, Okonkwo ruled his household with a heavy hand. His wives, especially the youngest, lived in perpetual fear of his fiery temper, and so did his little children. Perhaps down in his heart, Okonkwo was not a cruel man, but his whole life was dominated by fear, the fear of failure and of weakness. It was deeper and more intimate than the fear of evil and capricious gods and of magic, the fear of the forest and of the forces of nature, malevolent, red, and tooth and claw. Okonkwo's fear was greater than these. It was not external, but lay deep within himself. It was the fear of himself, lest he should be found to resemble his father. Even as a little boy, he had resented his father's failure and weakness, and even now he still remembered how he had suffered when a playmate had told him that his father was Agbala. That was how Okonkwo first came to know that Agbala was not only another name for a woman, it could also mean a man who had taken no title. And so Okonkwo was ruled by one passion, to hate everything that his father Unoka had loved. One of those things was gentleness, and another was idleness. Mm. Okay. So you that really sums up a lot of his characterization is like doesn't want to be seen as effeminate um is respect respectable as a self-made man is a hard worker but he's doing that at the expense of sort of compassion and gentleness and the things like ideally that would be balanced to make him like a like a well-adjusted or happy individual. Yeah, and that sounds like it's set up in the the 20th century cliche of like it's all it's all my parents' fault. But that's <laughs> it's functionally what it is in that in a society, certainly in a society this small where your options are far fewer for influence and what else you're going to do with yourself after you escape the influence of your parents mm-hmm. that that type of I will form myself into this thing that is in direct opposition to this other thing that was negative 
Yeah, and the book does some other new, interesting yeah. stuff yeah. there. Like he's he's staring into a fire one evening and wondering why his son is the way he is. And you know, he's saying, "Oh, I I am I am this great fierce fire and how could I have made a son who's as crappy as Nuoye basically?" Oh no. And then he sighs, and at the same time, the fire kind of sighs in a way that a, a fire can. And he realizes, you know, the only thing that comes from fire is, like, cold ash. Ugh. Like, it's not necessarily fire begetting fire. Though, I think you can make the argument that fire can beget fire. Uh, yeah. But what it ultimately, I guess, leaves behind is is disappointing kids. <laughs> awful yeah okay so what happens to him he's raising this kid he's not he's not enjoying it it doesn't well, so sound like it's yeah that's that's mostly just because you're seeing most things through his eyes and you're I mean, not everything but you're following him around for most of the story so that like the first part of the book is just really important in like getting a handle on him and where he's coming from. And he very much represents like the traditional side of things. Okay. So um, part two of the book. Well, okay. Let, part one ends with him accidentally injuring somebody during a festival and killing them. Ooh. And that like nobody's mad at him. Like it was an accident. Nobody's going to. Nobody's like out for blood or whatever. <sighs> but because he killed somebody he needs to go he's exiled he needs to go live with his like my, his mother's tribe for seven years before he can come back oh whoa okay and this gets in the way of his you know his plan to become a respected elder of these people because it's gonna you know it's not only is he gonna lose face for doing this in the first place but he's not gonna be around to be part of the community for seven years he's gonna miss a lot of yams he is gonna miss a lot of yams though i mean he's grown his own yams in his new home in exile, um, he has a friend who's growing and selling yams for him okay. in his old village. So, That's... you know, he's he's still in the yam game. Okay. But it's, it's hard to real get, really get back into that yam game once you're out. Yeah, game is the game. What? Watching The Wire a lot again <laughs> lately. I feel is relevant in most in most situations. It, it was there was a period of time when I was deep into the wire. That was all I was talking about on the show. So thanks for bringing it back. Yeah, no no worries at all. Um, all right. So part two is him in exile, and he's sometimes his friends come to visit him, and he hear he starts hearing about these white people who have come to town, and they want to build a church. And initially, everybody in the village is like, "Oh, these stupid white people. We're gonna give them." some land that nobody wants in the evil forest. Okay. Yep. And like the gods will get mad and kill them and we won't have to worry about it. So the, so Christianity and white people come in and start to kind of take root kind of slowly and insidiously almost. I don't, I don't know that Achebe wants me to think insidious like as the, as the main, like, adjective for what it is that they're doing but it is very like it's calculated very, it's very stealthy and, yeah yeah calculated and, and it's like a velvet glove sort of situation is this the first time that uh the members of his tribe have encountered white people um for a lot of them yeah like 
um, someone tells Okonkwo about this white guy and he's like, oh, so like an albino person, like he's not maybe seen somebody who just has pale skin before. Okay. So like people with these features and hair and stuff are very, they are very not different. from around here. Yeah. Okay. And is, is this, is his tribe explicitly named? Cause I know like the whole, the Igbo kingdom or the kingdom of Nuri, which is like the Igbo, you know, diaspora in a certain mm-hmm. sense is like that's their nation um but i i think achebe said that they are more they're more of a nation than one whole tribe because they were they were a bunch of smaller tribes before colonialism happened yeah and you get you get that in this book so i was i was trying to get around pronouncing any of it because it's it's <laughs> harder than the harder than the character names so the village that he is initially part of is u-m-u-o-f-i-a so like umwofia or something okay uh, um, and t- then wow i'll give it to you i don't know um and then the um one of the other villages m-b-a-i-n-o m-b-n-o so, yeah probably yeah yeah um. So yeah, you you do hear about people in other villages, and even even like in his mother's village, there's an older guy who says, you know, the the villages used to talk more, and now we're all just we all stay at home and we don't get to know our neighbors, and it used to be better. So we've talked a little bit in recent episodes about people complaining about the good old days, and yeah, it's also it's also true in Nigerian culture. Okay, that seems <laughs> for reasonable. old people to complain that it was better back when. Well, but that that whole. F- feeling seems like it's going to catch up with Okonkwo a little bit later so yeah so he starts hearing these secondhand stories and the way Christianity sweet kind of silently slips in under the you know under the door is it starts appealing to people who have been cast off who have been otherwise cast off by the traditional society so like for example every time twins are born they're just left in the evil woods to die because both they're, of them. yeah, both of them because okay. they're considered to be some kind of abomination. Um, there is this weird practice where if one woman loses a lot of children p- repeatedly, they sort of think that it's the same child, like an evil spirit coming back over and over again. Okay. And you, so you need to like punish that spirit to keep it from coming back. So you take like a like the corpse of an infant and like mutilate it, and they'll, oh, so they'll, and then okay. they'll tell stories about like babies being born with the injuries, like mm. scars from what they did to the last baby. Mm-hmm. Um, like some people just get exiled from society. Um, obviously, there are people like Unoka and Nuoye who do not necessarily uphold the values of the society who are kind of feeling excluded. So Nuoye is. He wonders, you know, why do we exile these people? Why do we leave twins in the woods? Like, what is the reason why we do this? And it's something that bothers him at a low level. And this is where I think we're supposed to feel good about or sympathetic toward the colonization is because they are bringing in this belief system where people aren't disposed of for sort of superstitious reasons. Yes, the and I know that, and I know that's like a, that's a really hard like line to walk. It's a hard judgment for me to make. It's like it's like an outsider to this culture, but it's the the ideal version of that religion in that moment is offering something that people are looking around and going, "Why don't we have this?" Yeah, right. yeah, and so it, it 
appeals at some level to people like that. And then eventually it gathers enough support that some like, quote unquote, respectable people kind of join up. And that's how it and and by the time it has grown enough that more traditional people like Okonkwo get upset about it, it's kind of too ingrained for them to do anything about it. So I'm not I don't want to ruin like the ending ending, but like Okonkwo does part three Okonkwo returns to um, Umuofia and is dismayed at the changes that have been wrought in his, in his absence. And he tries to, tries to lead the villagers in some, a kind of uprising and has some limited success before having a lot of not success. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. That's basically the end of the book. All right. And like, it's, so a lot of this book is in, is in just reading it. So, the uh, we were talking about the Igbo people, and they have like an oral tradition of storytelling. Yes, yes, and that very much comes through in this book. Like you, like people speak in anecdote a lot of the time. I wanted to say metaphor, but this is not a Star Trek episode. Is it? It's well, yeah. It's anecdote or parable. Is it anecdote? Yeah. Is it personal anecdote or is it? I, here's a story Anecdote, about parable idiom. Like it's it's they use older stories to to communicate. Yes, ideas. Okay. Uh, so like they were. T- this is this is a section that's talking about um, how nobody goes out like in the dead of night because okay. it's because it's dark. Uh, the night was very quiet. It was always quiet except on moonlit nights. Darkness held a vague terror for these people, even the bravest among them. Children were warned not to whistle at night for fear of evil spirits. Dangerous animals became even more sinister and uncanny in the dark. A snake was never called by its name at night because it would hear. It was called a string. And so on this particular night, as the crier's voice was gradually swallowed up in the distance, silence returned to the world, a vibrant silence made more intense by the universal trill of a million million forest insects. On a moonlight night, it would be different. The happy voices of children playing in open fields would then be heard, and perhaps those not so young would be playing in pairs in less open places, and old men and women would remember their youth. As the Igbo say, when the moon is shining, the cripple becomes hungry for a walk. So it's like a lot of these, a lot of like little sayings and phrases and like repeated things where you can, you can kind of sense that these stories were like ingrained in these people like they're kind of told to them in childhood and that that's how they came to understand certain things about the world you well know? what's fascinating about that passage is there's five or six different little mm-hmm. reasons mm-hmm. not to go out at night that all taken as a group form of value right? yeah 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 it's, yeah it's not just oh here is the story from our larger religion about why we do not do this thing it is yeah, it's idiomatic. It's this, okay, so I learned this from my grandma, and then I was talking to my other relative, and this is the thing that happened, and now I'm passing it on to you, and here are the seven different things that I've heard about this thing that I need you not to do, or else you'll die. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. So you were, you were talking, how does that affect how the prose flows? Because there's, there's, uh, there were early critiques, not straight out critiques, I guess, but hand-wringing, I suppose, about the fact that Achebe wrote this book in English, uh, even though it's from the point of view of a tribesman. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that 
is like the general spirit of this book is about, I don't know that it's, it's about the meeting of these kind of cultures and ideas. And I think that conveying these traditional idioms and ideas in the language of the colonizers is an interesting way to do that. Like meta textually. Yeah. Okay. I guess if that, if that is the way that I'm, if I'm using that word correctly. Yeah, I think so. He, uh, like you're using the way that you're telling the story. You're using the way that you're delivering the story to like, as a comment on the story itself, I guess. He, I think also was cognizant of the fact that he was not only writing for a Nigerian audience, he was writing for a wider audience, perhaps even the former colonials themselves or yeah. at the time of the writing, the end of the, of that colonial era. So they're not going to read it if it's not in English and mm-hmm. not English. Is, that's, that's certainly a, a colonial practice of, Hey, we're moving in here. You have about 20 languages here. Why don't you all just use ours uh, to solidify our power over you? That would be great. <laughs> uh, but also in the meantime, that means that as those disparate tribes or peoples kind of unify and eventually achieve their independence they've had a shared language and i think achebe is aware of that double-edged sword where it's like Mm -hmm. you've you've inherently lost a thing you've inherently or stopped using a thing that is part of your heritage as you adopt this unifying element that might make other parts of life easier yeah, after yeah, a whole like bunch it, of things were really, really hard. Yeah, like in in school, he like there were a lot of kids from different tribes brought in to go to the same school, and they all had to speak English instead of their own yeah. dialects because their you know their dialects were sufficiently separated that it would have been hard to communicate. Like to the point where they were they were punished for not speaking English. Yes, is that reflected and, in the book at all? Is there is there a language barrier between the colonists and the tribes people. Yeah, occasionally, like when you when you're talking about the white people, they have an interpreter. Okay. And when he says myself, they apparently like it sounds to them like my buttocks. Oh. <laughs> oh. So there are a couple little funny language barriery things going, but you know when when the characters need to communicate, they it's it's. Of course, because we're talking about colonialism, like the people can't bring like the tribes people can't bring their concerns directly to the white people who have put themselves in charge of this place. Right. Like they they can't go in and express like their own very reasonable concerns about like what this is doing to their communities and and everything. They have to talk through an interpreter. And I don't think the colonial people are especially interested in hearing from them because I'm, I'm sure that they didn't view themselves as like equals on the same footing. Yeah, certainly not people. Uh, um, yeah, but the, the way that the, the idioms and the like oral history influence the writing is you just get, you get a lot of passages where people are talking to each other and they will talk to each other in stories or in little or in anecdotes or in idioms. Like we, like we said before, like here's, here's some more just because I, I like this one. Um, so this is a person talking about um, his son sort of, he never, he's always in a hurry. He never walks. He's always running around. 
And the person who he's talking to says, you were very much like that yourself, said his eldest brother. As our people say, when mother cow is chewing grass, its young ones watch its mouth. Maduka has been watching your mouth. Whoa. So that's like a that's like a funny way to say, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree or whatever. Like we have yeah. our own stupid idiots for that sense. Somehow ours don't sound as cool. I know, right? I remember when I learned Not My Circus, Not My Monkeys like a year or two ago. You I blew do my like mind. that one a lot, I even though I think like not my circus, casual, not my monkeys. Yeah, your casual usage of it is sort of hampered by the fact that nobody else knows what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> no, people about. know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the problem is when I run into a circus where the monkeys are mine. I've I've had a couple of those where I really want to use that idiom, but I am in charge of the monkeys and I cannot. Yeah, I picked up from I think I picked this up from Susanna because I think it might be a southernism, but um I don't have a dog in that fight is one that I got from her that I like and use a lot. Interesting. Which is, yeah, like you get the, I don't know how often you hear that, but you get the sense of it like right off. Right? Oh, I I know exactly what it means. I just yeah. don't know. I'm uh, now unclear as to how often I've heard that phrase. Yeah. And it's also about dog fighting, which is, <laughs> which is maybe something I should distance myself from a little bit further. Like it yeah. implies that I have dogs in other fights. <laughs> Not in that fight. Not in this one, though. <laughs> or you have a different animal in the fight. I don't have a dog in that fight. I have a duck. I have a duck. Quack. Little uh, Jerry. <laughs> it's a chicken. Uh, but yeah, the the book is full of these little phrases that like you've never heard before because, well, I mean, I've never heard before because I'm a white guy in 2015 and yeah. not a Nigerian in 1920. Um, but like you instantly get the sense of them and you see like why they've been why they endure preserved to convey certain thoughts and ideas, you know, that was always, uh, one of the joys of when we were at Kenyon, um, our choir conductor, doc Locke actually had a real reverence for South African music. Um, much of which had been arranged from folk song. And it was, that was one of the joys of singing that music is kind of like brushing up against a folk, a folk tale you'd never heard of. Mm -hmm. Um, and figuring out what another culture's idioms for gossip are or, you know, laziness or, or whatever it might be. Um, and how often in, in cultures that uh, are from different regions of the world revolve around different animals and things that we would not sing songs about. Um, I even funny. like it when I hear about this customs and holidays and whatever that I'm familiar with, but hearing about how they're celebrated or like the figures in them mm, mm -hmm. in other cultures. So like when did Krampus come back? I don't know. Krampus He's... is back in a big way. I mean, not, I'm not exclusively talking about this weird movie. I can't tell if it's a comedy or a horror. I think it's a, I want to say it's a comedy because no. it has Adam Scott from parks and recreation. In I, it, think, but it's I think it's a it's Sharknado. A I think it's a Sharknado that Except which is actually in theaters. Yeah, it is neither a comedy nor a horror movie. It is a Sharknado. This podcast is brought to you by Krampus. <laughs> I think people were just like... In theaters, I guess now? <laughs> the idea that there was a thing called Krampus and that people might believe in it just tickled people's fancy. I just like Krampus as like in opposition to Santa Claus. Like this weird devil... 
who yes. eats kids or whatever it is. That well, he we're does. we're in a world where Slender Man is a thing. Like we needed some sort of Christmas Slender Man, and it turns out it's Krampus. Yeah, like I don't want. I don't know. I think it's too much to put on Santa's plate to ask him to dole out like good stuff and punishment because he's not like he's obviously good at giving out presents, but I think his punishments kind of lack. They lack a certain something like you get coal and like, oh, I'm going to go like burn this in my kiln or whatever. Like I can still use this. I remember in elementary school being told about a European Santa Claus who would leave switches behind for naughty kids. And by switches, I mean sticks for your parents to hit you with. So that's a very different Santa Claus. I feel like once Coca-Cola got Santa Claus on their payroll, he stopped doling out tricks and only sold out. Yeah, he totally (laughs) sold out. And he fired Black Pete. (sighs) I don't want to talk about Black Pete on this podcast, Andrew. (laughs) I hope Black Pete does. Please, America, like you've been so bad lately. Like, don't bring back Black Pete. Let's not. I'll take Krampus. I'll hang out with Krampus if we promise me that Black Pete doesn't come back. Oh, God. So let's talk about this book again, I guess, real quick. Okay. All right. I I mean, I think I have I've one said more thing. Most of the stuff I want to say. Yeah. Hit me with your thing. So one of the biogra- <laughs> one of the biographical uh, nuggets, not nuggets. That not nugget. Nuggets. Good. Yeah, that I found about Achebe that I, I, this is a thing I didn't know about. Apparently, in 1967, there was a Nigerian civil war where uh, a group of, I think it was on, I think it was East Nigeria, largely Igbo people, decided to secede and form a new nation called Biafra. Biafra? Okay. I don't know. Um, and Achebe and had a friend who, went and served in that rebellion and he uh his family almost died in like a bombing Achebe's during that conflict that raged for three years after the state established itself and then was eventually uh conquered and folded back into Nigeria proper and kind of I think shook Achebe's relationship to the whole process yeah uh, like I know that politics. he was yeah he got involved in politics briefly but got like so disillusioned by yes. like the elitism and the and the back scratching and all the all the stuff that comes with politics some of that was that before this out. yeah some of this was before yeah that like event. i know some they weren't contemporaneous the but i know yeah. that like he's got this long and complicated relationship with politics and i just kind of wanted to you were you alluded to it briefly i think some of it would have happened during okonkwo's seven-year absence like how does the tribe get divided, if at all, by the presence of the white Christian missionaries? Like, how does that, how does the, how do the colonists kind of split the tribe's people, if at all? Well, so there's the explicit way that we've already talked about, where we're talking talking about the Christian missionaries coming in and giving refuge to people who this society discards yeah so like dishonorable people twins that kind of stuff like those are the people who maybe they would benefit from a system that doesn't see them as as disposable you know and so they're they're eager to pick up the mantle of this new thing and then there's another thing that i'm not sure that the christians are doing intentionally Mm -hmm. but so they're talking about 
this is still sort of in an in an early stage and and this is a, it's another good idiom that Okonkwo gives is like he wants to he wants to bail them out while the water is still ankle deep. Okay. Yeah. Um and like unbeknownst to him it's already up to his chest. Yeah. But, <laughs> of course. But it's a good it's a good sentiment. Um the the native people think that like they they hesitate to punish the christians for doing anything because they don't want to insult their gods like they they are of the opinion that if their gods find this odious which of course they do because these christians have come in and are just flouting everything like the gods can take care of it themselves okay and so that keeps them from acting Uh. and and it, it makes them it makes them it helps a certain faction of them like justify being passive and in being passive, they just kind of de facto surrender do you, to this like yeah. invading force, you know? Do you have a sense of a Chebe or the book's take on that? Is there a take or is it just kind of being presented as a thing that happens? It's just kind of being presented as a thing. Like it's you do you do definitely get the sense through what happens to Okonkwo that the faction of people who want to fight back is not the majority faction okay like either people have either converted or they are too nervous to do anything because i mean one of the first things that the that the white people did when they came in is they wiped out one of the villages oh okay because the you know a guy rolled up on an iron horse which i believe is a bicycle but they called an iron horse guy rolled up on his iron horse and was talking to them in words they couldn't understand, and so they killed him. Yeah, okay. And then more white people came later and killed them. Yeah, this sounds and like so, the beginning like, of a lot I'll, of colonial I, I guess, narratives. Yeah, I guess maybe I, I, maybe I could have mentioned this up top when we were talking about <laughs> the way that the, <laughs> the way that Christianity spreads and like the relationship that white people have with the native people is, yeah, it definitely started with a lot of intimidation, and. Again, like something I keep coming back to is the how non-judgmental the book is about so much of this stuff. Like again, the white people are objectively doing bad things. Yes. To the native people. On the other hand, the native people are objectively doing bad things to like their own and 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 some of that I think is just the way they do things, but then like again, you get back to mutilating baby corpses and leaving twins in the woods. And when, you know, when, when certain members of the tribe get like a certain kind of wasting illness, they, they are sent out in the woods to die alone and they don't get any of their burial rights and stuff. Like it's, I don't want to say it's arbitrary, but it is, it does feel like stuff that Achebe at least thinks is bad or, maybe a little backward or maybe a little unnecessary you know it's it's hard to make that judgment you know but he's writing as a christian nigerian in the 50s yeah so that's probably where he's coming from um i was just kind of reading a little bit about the odinani religious tradition which i think is the general belief of the igbo people and i was fascinated by the fact that it has a monotheistic 
uh, almighty figure. Like it has mm-hmm. somebody at the top of the totem pole. Yep. Called Chukwu or Chineke. I'm not sure which name this book might use. Yeah, and to some small extent, like you read about, um, like when you go back to uh, Rome, you read about Christians making Roman people more comfortable with Christianity by sort of recasting Mapping it onto. Yeah. 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 And you get the idea that that's what they're doing here is they're like, oh, yeah, you, there is that one almighty God. So you guys seem to be comfortable with that. So that's great. But then everyone below him is just like you just you just whittle that guy out of a piece of wood like it's not a God or like you or you got the angel thing wrong. And it's like your own all the other gods that you have on your on your list are just angels. Don't worry about it. Our yeah. gods are the same. We're cool. You just came up with different words. Come on over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so, so that was, that is another way like going back to the thing you asked about earlier that is another way that the the christian missionaries make their religion more palatable to these people who've been living in this way for i mean it's not said for how long but at least a couple hundred years you know yeah all right well i i think that's the book right you didn't yeah, want to spoil like the ending the, even though i think long, we all kind of know where not, it's going yeah, it's not a long read. It's not a complicated read. Achebe is really interesting, and you should read more about him if yes. you like this book. I mean, he wrote tons of other novels. This originally was the first part of a larger book that he then like took and made into various sequels and things. Yeah, there's um, a second book that follows Okonkwo's grandson. Is that true? Um, this is No Longer at Ease. There you go. Thanks. It's about Obi, the grandson of Okonkwo. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he definitely wrote more in this vein. Um, I would, I think, I would like to follow up with that at some point, and if not for the show, then just for my own like fund of knowledge, because this is just this is a little corner of history that I don't really know that much about. Yeah. Like the whole like when it comes to the sun never setting on the British Empire, the stuff I'm more familiar with is like India and then America. But yes. there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in in Africa and the Congo and Nigeria and just all this stuff that I'm not like. Yeah, there's two periods of history, well in. two periods of history there that I'm particularly cognizant of my own ignorance of. The, it's, I mean, it encompasses the whole reign of colonialism, but the how it all starts in each particular region, and then kind of the flurry of mid 20th century activity, like World War II happens and then Europe kind of stops for a little while. And mm-hmm. then the next thing that happens is that domino collapse where all the empires go away. Yeah, right. Um, and like that is a, there's a whole bunch of activity, particularly in in Africa, that I don't really know about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we didn't talk too much more about uh, Okonkwo and uh, women. We talked about that kind of earlier on, but I think Achebe has. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all very much that. in that in that same vein where he like. I don't know, he hits his wives. Like, at one point, he has a crappy gun that can't hit anything that he actually fires at one of his wives. Doesn't hurt her, but does fire a gun at her. Yeah. He just has a, he has a temper, and he's, like, very attractive, and he's good at making kids. But so, in addition to the stuff that we've kind of talked about already, like, like you heard in, in one of the passages I already read about, like, the subtle and not-so-subtle <laughs> stuff about, like, male good female bad at least that goes on in Okonkwo's mind and in a lot of the a lot of the male minds in this society I think this is something that he's hearing from um I think his mother's youngest brother 
mm-hmm. uh, once he's been exiled. And he's he's kind of been moping around because his whole plan for advancement's been shot. And uh, this is Okonkwo who's moping around. And um, so this is this is his uncle talking to him. Can you tell me, Okonkwo, why it is that one of the commonest names we give our children is Neka or Mother is Supreme? We all know that a man is the head of the family and his wives do his bidding. A child belongs to its father and his family and not to its mother and her family. A man belongs to his fatherland and not to his motherland. And yet we say Neka, mother is supreme. Why is that? There was silence. I want Okonkwo to answer me, said Uchendu. I do not know the answer, Okonkwo replied. You You do not know the answer, so you see that you are a child. You have many wives and many children, more children than I have. You are a great man in your clan, but you are still a child, my child. Listen to me and I shall tell you, but there is one more question I shall ask you. Why is it that when a woman dies, she's taken home to be buried with her own kinsmen? She's not buried with her husband's kinsmen. Why is that? Your mother was brought home to me and buried with my people. Why was that? Okonkwo shook his head. He does not know that either, said Uchendu, and yet he is full of sorrow because he has come to live in his motherland for a few years. He laughed a mirthless laughter and turned to his sons and daughters. What about you? Can you answer my question? They all shook their heads. Then listen to me, he said and cleared his throat. It's true that a child belongs to its father, but when a father beats his child, it seeks sympathy in the mother's hut. A man belongs to his fatherland when things are good and life is sweet, but when there is sorrow and bitterness, he finds refuge in his motherland. Your mother is there to protect you. She is buried there. And that is why we say that mother is supreme. Hmm. And so, yeah, that's it gives a little more shading to well, and the that, relationship between yeah. father and mother, male and female. And that the male good, female bad thing is really tied specifically to Okonkwo's experience and how he, as you said earlier, leans on some cultural values as opposed to it being the totality of like tribal experience yeah yeah it's not like it's not always like man good woman bad it's just like there is a man's place in society and there is a woman's place in society and because you're getting this mostly from Okonkwo what you're gonna see is the man's place and where like female qualities are frowned upon or undesirable yeah and I found a quote from Achebe to that effect he was expressing kind of frustration that people were I guess it would happen as people looked at this book as an authentic uh, native experience. Yeah, sure. Then for him to present, as you were saying earlier, kind of unsavory elements of that experience, people might read that as endorsement. Tweets do not imply endorsement, right? Retweets yeah. do not imply endorsement. Yeah, um, way, to, way to bring in a modern idiom to describe this idea. Yeah. That's so, applied knowledge right there. <laughs> thanks. Uh, Achebe said, I want to sort I want to sort of scream that things fall apart is on the side of women and that Okonkwo is paying the penalty for his treatment of women, that all his problems, all the things he did wrong can be seen as offenses against the feminine. Um, And so I think Achebe, even while, you know, presenting some pretty male centric uh, views and systems is, is aware that that is perhaps not ideal. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, and that's I think that that's again one of the counterbalances to you know Christians come in and wipe out the perfectly good thing that was already there like that that's one way in which the society is not perfectly good is it's yeah. in general pretty crappy to its women yeah well there we go things so, fall apart yeah. things do fall apart um <laughs> so. I hope that we did the book justice like we've I think we make a lot of effort to read books by women on the show and yeah. to like have a lot of uh 
guests who are women on. Um, not like we don't, I don't like to like bring people on and be like, well, give me the female perspective. But no. I think we do a better job being um, gender diverse than we do of being diverse racially otherwise. diverse. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so, yeah, like I hope that we did this justice. Do let us know um, on Twitter at twitter.com slash overdue pod on Facebook at facebook.com slash overdue pod or via email at overdue pod at gmail.com. Like we are. In 2016, like we've already mapped out a lot of different books to read, and we've got a lot of women, a lot of people of color, a lot of, a lot of good stuff on the list. But I think that's, I think it's safe to say that that's like a goal for us in 2016 yeah. is to just continue trying to bring in more perspectives and more voices, whether that's people who are on the show or just books that we are reading from for the show. Certainly. And so that's like, that's one of the reasons I wanted to read this in the first place is it's like a seminal work. And this episode. Uh, would not occur in the slot that it does were it not for the generous support of our Patreon donors. Um, so this is a bonus episode, which I don't think we said earlier in the show. We didn't. They all kind of run together. They I do think all we're run recording together. one, two, three episodes of Overdue in the next like four or five days. Yeah, it's going to be like, great. Two more the week after that or something. Uh, but we do it because we uh, have awesome listeners, and then some of those listeners go on to have the means to be awesome supporters. Uh, and in, since our last bonus episode, I want to, a whole bunch of people have joined the flock and that they went over to patreon.com slash overdue pod and they decided to support the show on a monthly basis. Uh, and that includes Sarah, Kelly, Scott, Maggie, uh, Hijin, Samantha, Robin, and Neil. Uh, thank you guys. And thanks for everyone who's been supporting the show uh, because it, forces us to read more and forces us to make more podcasts for you which i think is the goal basically you saying you want more podcasts so we'll make more podcasts almost have 150 episodes and yet the complaint that i'm seeing the most recently is (laughs) you got more podcast episodes coming yeah we're trying i'm not a podcasting robot actually i think you've become one andrew By the time that you listen to this, our Catch-22 episode will have come out. That's all I can tell you. The, apparently, we're going to read the Fifty Shades book at some point. We've got some we're holiday plans. super soon. Um, I'm going to be doing Around the World in 80 Days for my oh, next that's right. proper book. Whenever, uh, Who knows when you're hearing this episode? Um, we've got Yeah, we've got some holiday fun planned. We've got a couple of guest episodes coming up. That's 50 it. Shades is going to be awful. I've read about 10% of it. Craig's read none percent of it. And I like to just text him little glimpses of of what he's going to be getting into. Like the words, to... the words don't pee factor in pretty early on, like distressingly early on, really, when you think about it. Let's cut, let's make this episode be over. Let's, okay, it's I'll, over. Let's thanks everybody for listening. Don't pee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't pee. And until next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.